Good morning, Door of Hope. My name is Matt. I am delighted to be here with you this morning. Would you please stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? From Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred in the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered for him to be crucified. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Oh boy. Thank you, Mindy. That was beautiful. It takes guts to share your story. Um, I'm inspired. Thank you. There's no great, great segue from that, um, so we'll just jump in. One of the things that this passage that <clears throat> Matt just read for you uh, impressed upon my mind and my heart is the way in which God has infused so much meaning into our stories, into human history, into the particular events that happen. Um, you know, it's oversimplistic to boil down your, the range of options for how to understand the universe into, into two categories. There are many, many ways and many uh, points along the spectrum you could conceptualize, but a common dichotomy, a common two that are often pit, pitted against one another is something like the Christian view or specifically the Christian view of, of history and humanity and nature and how the world is and how it operates versus a purely materialistic one. One in which uh, the universe, as we understand it, is uh, simply matter in motion, you know, atoms, molecules, and on and on, banging around to and fro. Uh, I suppose quantum theory complicates that a little bit, or maybe throws it out entirely, we'll see. Um, but nonetheless, the idea that the material is all that there is. Uh, and if that is the case, um, you know, people try to rage against it and fight against it and come up with clever ways to avoid this endpoint. Uh, but to my brain, which is a weak one, admittedly, but to my, to my understanding, I just don't think you can avoid it, which is <clears throat> if the world simply sprung into existence by some sort of chance happenstance, if somehow life came from non-life through random happenstance and circumstance, uh, if all that exists is truly, genuinely, at the bottom, matter in motion, um, there's no way to ascribe any kind of significance or meaning to anything that happens. 
Um, we, we want to. We are meaning-making creatures at our core. Um, but I don't think you can. If at the end of the day, uh, the human brain is simply the latest domino in an endless domino chain, going back to the Big Bang or whatever it is, uh, of matter banging around neurochemical reactions, even the fa my perceived autonomy and ability to make choices is truly just predetermined from that first domino that fell. Uh, my life is really, really, and many people will say this explicitly, not so different than that of an animal, that of a tree, even that of non-living things like a rock or something else, or stardust or whatever. Um, that's one way of conceptualizing the world. Um, or there's the Christian way. There's the way that flows out of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament that says, no, actually, before uh, matter in motion existed, uh, there was a God who is love fundamentally. A God who, before he created a single thing, already existed in a self-giving love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. He did not need to create something else to satisfy some need or to be loved or to have something to love. It's just who he is at bottom. And out of his overflowing abundance, he decides to create and to create not just the universe and all this amazing stuff that will, is literally going to take us eternity to uh, discover, which is very exciting to me. Um, but uh, humans, image bearers, people that he says will bear my image, will carry something of my dignity, will be my objects of love and of partnership in helping to rule and cultivate and bring into even deeper beauty this world that I've made. Two very different stories. Two very, very different stories that if you chase down have very different implications. And on this second story, it's not just that uh, things started out with us loaded down with significance and meaning and value, but even down to the particular moments of our stories, even ones that seem so counterproductive and so sort of distant from anything God would be interested in or able to work through, he continues to work and he continues to make meaning and he continues to find ways to love and to reveal himself and to glorify himself and to weave your genuine will and desire into this larger story that he's telling. Mindy, your story, I think, illustrated that so beautifully. This story here in Mark 15 is one of those, now circling back, where I am just struck by the providence of God, God as storyteller, God as like cosmic artist, God as the one who takes these random, uh, seemingly random sort of different people's motivations and historical circumstances and accidents of history and weaves them together in ways that, that picture the deepest truths about who he is, who we are, and how we bring those two things together. So let's keep going. The story you've probably heard before, this is, this is the final condemnation of Jesus. And we see that the morning came, and as we mentioned, when the chief priests and the scribes and the, the, the Sanhedrin was having this secret nighttime meeting at the chief priest's house, it was illicit, it was illegal, it was not supposed to happen. Uh, and so now we see that it's morning time and they have basically another little meeting. This is like the official one probably where they could officially declare after they've already done all the shady stuff in the back room in secret. Say, okay, we have another meeting in the morning, the whole council, and we declare Jesus is guilty. Um, and they bring him. They bring him to this man, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. 
And the first thing I want to highlight is the contrast here between these two rulers. Pontius Pilate, who we're told is, is a Roman prefect, he is, he's a governor of sorts. He has some sphere of responsibility. Uh, commentator Dale, David Garland says he had the power of life and death over all the inhabitants of his province, the one that he was over, who were not Roman citizens. Um, so he is uh, underneath the Roman emperor. He is the, the Roman representative over sort of uh, this particular region uh, to settle disputes and to kind of maintain order. And that's one ruler. The other ruler that we see, you probably know where we're going with this, is this King of the Jews character. This man by the name of Jesus Christ who, who, who is here on trial before him. So Pilate, as we said, he's a Roman prefect. That's his role. And the reason they had to bring him, uh, bring Jesus to, them, to him is because they did not have the authority to execute a capital punishment. They wanted Jesus dead, but they actually had to come and get Pilate's approval for this. And so they bring him. They say, Pilate, it tells us uh, they were raising all these charges against Jesus. We know what some of them were. This man's blasphemy, uh, guilty of blasphemy. He's equating himself with God, which Pilate wouldn't care about. Either. So what? <laughs> I, don't care. I don't care about your gods regardless. But the one that he might care about that might motivate Pilate to have this Jesus killed is that he claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Christ. What's so significant about that? That is a claim to be the one true spirit of God anointed king, king of the people of God. So Pilate asks him the question, and the, and the other gospels generally, I think all three of them have more detailed accounts of this story that help you might recognize some of the scenes from this that are cut out of Mark's gospel as he's trying to give us just this concise version. Uh, but, but the way Pilate asks it here is he just poses the question directly to Jesus. Here's his question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? The, the, the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus killed on political grounds, so the charge that they want to foreground is this idea that Jesus is king. They were chiefly scandalized by his divine claim to be God, but they wanted him condemned on the basis of this quasi-political claim that he is the Messiah or the king of the Jews. What Pilate is asking Jesus here when he asks, are you the king of the Jews, is this. Just how big of a political threat are you to me? How big of a political threat are you to me? Just how do you understand your kingship? Do you really view yourself as a king who has authority over against me or not? That's what Pilate's concerned about here. And anyone who would challenge Pilate's rule, or by extension, uh, uh, the Roman emperor's rule, had to be killed, and they had to be killed publicly, had to be crucified. So that's his question. Just what kind of a threat are you? We also see his scheme here. So they, they, have a, they have this little discussion. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, you have said so. That's an enigmatic answer. We'll come back to that. The chief priest accused him of many things. Uh, they continued to uh, sort of tell Pilate, like, no, he's, he's doing all this stuff. This is what you need to be concerned about him. And Pilate again asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And once again, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He was astounded. Maybe he was confused. Just what is up with this guy? It is not typical 
if there was some way for someone to diffuse a situation, certainly to diffuse their own execution, usually we're just going for it, like, oh, well, you haven't thought about this, or no, I'm just, I'm a chill guy, I'm not trying to do this or that. Jesus just remains quiet. You say I'm the king of the Jews? Okay. And then silence. Now, at the feast, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, uh, butts up against the Passover, we've, been t- we've talked about that in recent, recent weeks, um, we see that there was this tradition, evidently, where Pilate would release for the Jews one prisoner that they asked for. I was thinking, the closest analog I can think of is like when the President of the United States pardons a turkey every year at Thanksgiving. You see that? <laughs> I don't know. When did that start? I, don't, I didn't even bother to relook into the significance of this. I, is that a play on this, maybe? I'm not really sure. But the president picks one turkey and says, you're good this year, buddy, and sets him aside. Turkey gets to live, live, his, uh, live his best life, at least for one more year. They had something similar. They had something similar, a far more consequence. You get to choose one prisoner who will be released. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the resurrection, there was a man in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did. So this just coincided with the the, the normal thing where the crowd would say, hey, it's it's that time of year. We need you to pardon someone, release someone to us. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate is aware. Something fishy's going on here. Pilate is getting the sense that this Jesus guy, whoever he is, he's a weird guy. He's not really being straightforward with me. We're having these interesting debates. You can read more in the other gospels. But he's getting the sense that like, I don't, I don't think this guy is like a criminal deserving of death. So Pilate's scheme here is to try to offload the decision onto the crowd. He wants to offload the decision onto the crowd. And the other Gospels even shows him washing his hands, saying, I am innocent of this Jesus' blood. This is the crowd's decision who's going going to condemn him. So his scheme is to pass on the decision to the people. And in this decision, what we see of this, this ruler, this Pilate, is his weakness is his weakness. We see it play out. He, he says, you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was of envy that they had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So Pilate comes back again. He's like, well, hang on now. Then, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate even comes to the defense of Jesus here. Why? What evil has he done? What, what, what's Jesus done that's wrong that deserves this? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And here's, here's the definitive phrase here in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, whipped him, beaten him savagely, was customary before a crucifixion, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate's weakness here is that he is totally, even though he has his own personal sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust in this situation, is that he bends his will for political expediency 
to not cause more chaos, not cause more disorder than is necessary. For political expediency, he bends his sense of justice to the desire of the mob, to the desire of the crowd. These are the same crowds that throughout the Gospel of Mark have been interested in Jesus. Lots of people were, you know, you describes the crowds coming up, and they, they're interested in Jesus' teaching. Maybe some of them follow him for a period of time. Um, these are the crowds that have been admiring Jesus. Um, even perhaps in this crowd of people shouting crucify him were some of the very same people just almost a week before on Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into the city on his donkey were saying, Hosanna, God save. This is the son of David. Viewing him as the king, as the Messiah, as the one who is going to put everything right. Perhaps some of those same people in just of less than a week's time go from crown him to crucify him. Crucify him. And I believe it was, I believe it was the modern uh, philosopher uh, Tommy Lee Jones in the film Men in Black. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen Men in Black. Uh, but I'll always remember this quote. He's talking to Will Smith on the bench in New York City, and he says, A person is smart, but people are dumb. <laughs> people are dumb. A person is smart, but people are dumb. And I think that's true. That's not to denigrate what large groups of people in unison can accomplish using their voice, but, more, but a crowd, a mob, cannot reason. It cannot do introspection. It cannot do much other than move too quickly for what's good for itself. And this is the case just here. The same people who wanted to crown Jesus five, six days prior are ready to shout, crucify him at the simple prodding of someone else. It's just that bloodlust in the air. Probably these people don't even know why they want Jesus crucified. But the spirit begins to take over. And Pilate, though he knows to, to entertain this would be to entertain evil. His weakness will not allow him to. And he tries instead to wash his hands of the situation, to put the responsibility on them, even though the buck stops with him in this situation. That's our first ruler, Pilate, the prefect, Pilate, the governor. There's another one, though. There's this king of the Jews, that the characters in the story sort of mockingly or facetiously use that, that speaks a deeper truth than any of them can realize. And the question that this Jesus, the king of the Jews, is asked is, are you in fact the king of the Jews? Again, just what kind of political threat are you? And uh, I, I read a few people that pointed out Jesus' answer here is very, very interesting. In refusing to come down hyper-definitively in, in this enigmatic answer, you have said so, he, what he's enabling, he's, he's not saying no. He's not saying no. My rule, my kingship, which of course Jesus believed himself to be the rightful king of the Jews, king of the universe in some sense, uh, he's not saying no, I'm of no political threat to you. Jesus in fact, challenges every political authority at some point or another, and he's not going to deny that. Nor is his answer yes, to straightforwardly say, yes, my chief issue with you is a political one, is an earthly one, is one of this world. He leaves it in this subtle sort of yes and no and neither and both, which I think captures something very significant about the relationship of Jesus. We could think of John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not the kind you're thinking of. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And some of them did try, try to do that, as you remember. They would have taken their swords, they would have taken their rifles, they would have taken their tanks, whatever. They would have gotten down to business that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said to him, this is still in John 18, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? See how Mark captures kind of the the yes and no and maybe and, 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 and not in the way that you're thinking of this, what's complex in John. He boils it down and he still captures the heart of that. Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. And what does it mean? I'm both, I'm both the king in a way that will challenge every would-be political authority over against me and one who is simultaneously just not of this world, just not in the same conversation, just totally on a different dimension of interaction. It's Jesus the King. And after this, all the Gospels record, there's a point in the conversation where he just turns silent. He no longer, he doesn't defend himself. He just allows the charges to come against him and he lets Pilate and the others do what they will. So that's two rulers. But then we move down the story and we get another really important contrast here, one that's easy to miss, which is that there are these two sons or these two criminals even. The first is this man Barabbas. Barabbas the murderer told that he had committed murder. There's no, there's no debate about this. This, this was not, uh, well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's guilty, maybe he's not. He was guilty. There was an insurrection, and he had committed murder. And what's very interesting about this is his name. Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, son of Abba. Okay, anybody want to take a stab at that? What's that? Son of the Father. Son of dad, son of the father. Bar Abba. <laughs> there was a man. And actually some of the, the New Testament uh, textual variants record, we're not sure if it's original or not, but that his, his first name was Jesus, which is a common, common name at the time in Israel. So it's perhaps that this man is Jesus, son of the father, <laughs> who is being condemned, or he was being condemned for execution in Rome. This other son of the father was legitimately guilty of murder, and his, ju- his judgment, his ju- uh, the judgment he was receiving was completely just. He was deserving of death. But there's another son of the father <laughs> in, right in the story, isn't there? The one that Jesus has called. In fact, just the previous story. Are you the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. It's Jesus Christ, the son of God. The one who from the cross cries out to his Abba, to his father. Why have you forsaken me? Okay. Two sons. Two criminals. And what we see here. Here's where this thing really blew my mind. What we see here in this story 
is, is divine sovereignty. If you can take off your skeptic hat for a second and say, well, this, I don't know, surely this must be some sort of edited or doctored story. No way this thing played out like this, but um, we have every reason to believe that it did. In, in the course of history, God has ordained things in such a way that at this chief moment where the Son of God, who is for the eternal plan of God from eternity past, has been uh, planning on sacrificing, offering himself to a sacrificial death on behalf of sinners, comes to this point where you've got all these different character motivations, and I think they're all believable. You've got the chief priests who hate Jesus for reasons we've been talking about. They do not respect him. They do not want him. They view him as a blasphemer. They do not want his authority over them. They think his understanding of who God is is fundamentally flawed, so they want to get rid of him, but they can't do it. They don't want the blood on their hands. They also legally have to give it to to Pilate. They've got their motivations. You've got Pilate. This man, who is the appointed at this time governor over this, this portion um, of Israel, and he is, <laughs> he's got his motivations for what he wants to do. He's trying to avoid the, the mob. He's trying to avoid a riot. He's trying to make sure the peace is kept. He's intrigued by Jesus. He suspects Jesus is being unfairly treated, but whatever, we, we've got his motivation. Then we've got this man, Barabbas, who is probably... Uh, probably what he was, was trying to overthrow the Roman government. He was probably a zealot, one of the ones who wanted to take the sword, like many Jews did, and to say, off with the Roman's head, we're getting these guys out of here. We're done with their oppression over us, and murdered many, probably, in the process. He's got his motivations for doing that, but it just so happens that this man, the son of the father, is the one who is right here on the trial, on the stand, at the exact moment that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one true Son of the Father in the deepest sense is there as well. We have in this moment the divine sovereignty authoring human history in such a way that all of these little individual threads and stories come together to give us a profound and deep and beautiful window into the very meaning of Jesus' sacrifice. Even down to this character's name, it is significant. And so in this story, we see divine sovereignty and... I think, you know, there's a million books written on how you understand God's sovereignty, or in other words, his control of the universe, and how that butts up against human responsibility and real human choice. And all I can say, I think the most satisfying answer I can give is to leave it as one of those incredible mysteries that somehow the Bible holds up for us, that God is utterly sovereign in working out the events of history, and humans are genuinely like have genuinely meaningful wills and responsibility for their choices. And you might go, well, those two things can't exist at once. And I would just say, prove it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know how you would prove or disprove. I know that it's, there's, a, there's a logical challenge there and tension there, but I think we just have to rest in that tension. But from where I'm sit- sitting, I see every person with a very, very human and understandable motivation who's entered into this story, and you see the unmistakable way in which God has authored as this grand artist of history has pulled this moment together to tell us something utterly profound about the meaning of Jesus' death. Okay, what is it? What is this telling us? Well, so far in the Gospel according to Mark, 
there have been really, this is the second of two big images that it's given us around what, what did Jesus die for? Jesus has been talking about his death for a long time throughout Mark. It didn't take him by surprise. It was something he was planning to do. It was his will. It was his desire. It was his, he, he, he 100% understood the assignment when he embarked on his public ministry. He was going to die for the world. But the two images it's given us so far, first was at the Passover supper. You remember that? They have the Passover meal together, and Jesus sort of subverts the, the normal process for what you do with all the, the food elements and stuff. And he says, look, here's bread. Here's the bread. He broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the wine. He took the cup. He said, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Take these in remembrance of me. We, we, we highlighted that what Jesus was doing right there was tying his sacrificial death that was about to happen to this Passover event, the most significant sort of salvation event, the Passover and the Exodus of the Old Testament, and saying, I am the fulfillment of this. What that, that was a significant event in its own right, but what that pictured, I'm about to do for the sins of the whole world, for the enslavement of the whole world. I am the better and truer and deeper and eternal and once for all, Passover lamb. That was the first image. Here's the second one, this story, if you have the eyes to see it. The second one is this, what theologians might call penal substitution, that Jesus took the penalty that sinners were owed, that sinners were owed. And not just the penalty but also, on the flip side of that, he gave the freedom and the righteousness that he had legitimately earned by virtue of being the only genuinely innocent, spotless, sinless person to ever exist. And he gave it to another. He gave it to a sinner. He gave it to all sinners who would receive it. This story is the picture. There's one son of the father who is, stands guilty before a death sentence. There is one man who deserves what is coming. And then there is Jesus who refuses to defend himself to get him out of this situation, who silently, like in the words of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We'll read more about that. And though he had done no violence, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Or as Peter puts it, reflecting back perhaps on this very story in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And Peter goes on, but we can stop there. The New Testament and the Old Testament talks about the death of Christ in num numerous ways. This is not the only way that we can conceptualize the atonement or the death of Jesus and what it brought about, but this is one of them. This is one of the important ones. I think there's actually all kinds of problems when you try, try to make any one of these ideas or images, that the chief one that excludes the others, but we have to make space for this one, certainly. 
he substituted in and bore the punishment, though he was innocent. And not just bore that punishment, but gave away the gifts that he deserved. Jesus stands silent before his accusers, and he receives, he willfully steps in to take Barabbas's, the son of the father, what he was owed. And Barabbas, this son of the father, goes free. He goes free. You could, you could imagine him just like absolutely having no category for this. He sh- he, I'm sure he assumed before this day, like, there is no way I'm getting out of this thing. Wait, the guards released the shackles or whatever it looked like. They let him, they, they're like, okay, the, the crowd wants you to go. The crowd wants you to go. And he kind of stumbles out, and you'd imagine, like, stumbling out in the crowd, like, what is going on? And you could almost imagine someone saying, see that guy? Jesus. They call him the son of God. They call him the king of the Jews. He took your place. It's going to be him up on that cross instead of you. You're free. You are free. But he's not. He's not. This is the staggering beauty, at least part of the staggering beauty of Christ's sacrifice. The innocent for the guilty. The judge of the universe, the only perfect righteous one becoming the judged, taking the judgment upon himself. The one person who never deserved a condemnation like this, willfully taking it so that those who did deserve it could go free and find life and forgiveness and peace and joy and freedom and flourishing and hope and eternity in fellowship with the God of the universe. This son goes to judgment so that the other son can come home to God. Do you see it? Our God is an artist, friends. The way this text is put together, but the way these events in history came together to teach us just what Jesus had done for us is absolutely astounding. We live in a world where if you have the eyes to see, every nook and cranny is full of pointers to his divine authorship, and not just his authorship, but his loving goodness, generous grace towards his people. Amen? So, a lot of these stories here in this last section of Mark, which I think are the right ones to be in here during Lent, to be in the passion, the suffering of Jesus, the unjust treatment of Jesus, they leave us, they leave us with kind of like a now what? Like, you know, we're just kind of getting information about who Jesus was and what he did and even how it worked in this picture of what the significance was going to be of the cross he was just about to go to. And I think what we're meant to see in this picture, if you want to take some application, is that so often we are in the position of Pilate. We are the ones willing to to, to throw Jesus to the ravenous mob, to throw Jesus against popular opinion, to cut ourselves up, to try to wash our hands from any association with him. Try to say, do your worst. I, I just don't want any part of it. 
We're guilty on that front. We are also so often the crowd, the crowd that gets riled up against our better judgment, against our rational thinking, against, you know, our commitments to honor this Jesus into whatever the cause of the day is to say like, oh yeah, this over against Jesus. There are causes of the day that are good and worth fighting for, of course, but there are plenty that capture us from just the, the, the momentum of a crowd, an unthinking crowd that pull us along and we might find ourselves cheering the destruction of our king. And I think it goes without saying, but we should say it regardless, we are also often Barabbas. In fact, fundamentally, I think we're meant to see us as him in this story. We are the ones who at some point or another in grand ways or in minor ways, seemingly minor ways, we're guilty. We've fallen short. We've missed the mark. We've harmed our brothers and our sisters. We've turned our back from the God who loved us and created us. We stand justly condemned. Like if God were going to make this world a place of perfect goodness and justice, he would have to deal with you. Hate when preachers do that. And me. (laughs) All of us. If this world's going to be perfectly good and just, we're out of here. We are Barabbas. And Jesus says, take me instead. That's the cross. That's the gospel. Part of it. He says, the king, the king for the criminal. To make the trade, I will die that they might live. I will be distanced from the father so that they can come home to him. And so whether you believed that and trusted that, threw yourselves on that 20 years ago, if that's you, I pray that today would just be a fresh reminder as we sing a few more songs. I do think we're going to need to cut at least one of those songs banned. I'm sorry, I've gone a little bit long. But as we're singing these songs, may we declare back to him our gratitude and our love and our appreciation for what he's done and may it motivate us to abide in him and to deeper obedience and to closer following because the story, if it tells us anything, it's that this Jesus is worth following. He is worth it. He is worth it. And if you have never, never grabbed a hold of this for yourself, what the Bible declares is whether you believe it or not, Jesus did this for you. And the best thing you can do is to come to believe that and to receive it for yourself and and, and experience the open arms of this Jesus who says, I did everything necessary to bear your burden so that you can come freely to him and receive everything, all this goodness that he has for you that can never be taken away. So today I say, come to him, come to him. We're told whoever believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And if you do that, come share that with me. Come share that with somebody here that looks like they know what they're doing. Love to pray with you and process with you what that might mean to follow after this Jesus, after receiving that gift. It's for us all. Conclude with this. Romans 5, 6 through 11, the Apostle Paul, once again, probably reflecting on these very events, says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Praise God, door of hope. That is a glorious truth.